This week on Writers Inc. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very much a data-driven person. Um, I love spreadsheets. I love data. Um, numbers never lie. And yeah, for me, that's that's definitely um, something that, that I use. I've definitely got a very kind of business-minded. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. How's it going, JD? Hey, man. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm um, writing and living the life. How about you? <laughs> well, the, the audiobook wars, I think, have officially begun. So we, we, we touched on this a little bit last week, but I got the official email from Audible um, telling me that, uh, quote, my membership just got sweeter. Um, so that catalog that they opened up uh, as the you know all you can eat audiobooks, it, they just tacked it on to the the regular membership of their their Audible subscribers because um, I, I just have that you know the, the simplest plan I think they have. I pay like fifteen bucks a month for one credit, um, but now they've opened the the doors to this this back catalog of things that I can just stream. Um, and and I would hope to to look at that catalog before we we got on the air today, and I just haven't had a chance to do it. I'm just trying to get a feel for what's actually in there. Uh, I've got a feeling it's going to be on par with you know the the other services that are like this. But it, this is Audible, you know, really stepping up to try and shut down you know Spotify and some of these other guys that are trying to get into the game now. Yeah, it's crazy, and I don't know if you've um, I know I think you have an iPhone, right? Yeah, I do. Uh, what's I mean is anything happening with Apple and audiobooks I feel like they're they're might they're giving up the fight when it comes to audiobooks you know it's it's a the whole publishing thing like you know when I, I love Apple I mean like I've got you know there's a, a Mac Pro sitting on my desk I've got my iPhone I've got my watch I've got I've got everything like I'm totally stuck in the ecosystem I couldn't walk away if I, I had to um, but their bookstore their audio store like those things are terrible and they just they give me the same impression that I, I kind of get from Google Play like you know this is somebody in a conference room said oh we're supposed to be in that market and they just grabbed three people out of the you know the, the cafeteria or something and said you're in charge and they just sent them off on their way like you know, get get us in the game we don't really care how we just need to be there you know, like that that's kind of the impression that i get um you know but meanwhile they've got this incredible market share where if they really wanted to they they could they could dominate for sure but they just they you know it's obviously not a focus of their business model um if it's if it's meant to be it doesn't appear that way from the outside um you know like even, even getting a link you know to like a, a book that i've got coming out you know trying to figure out what the actual link is back on the you know the itunes store um, it, it's difficult. Like everything about it is, is hard. Yeah. I, 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 it's, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me, especially because, uh, when it comes to music, I mean, iTunes was synonymous with, with online music for many, many years and audiobooks. when it comes to the technical production distribution platforms, it can't be that different. I mean, your, your scale is different, but like the delivery system is the same. And if you've already built that for iTunes, it seems like a no-brainer to kind of push into audiobooks, but it, it doesn't seem like Apple is getting into that fight. Well, you know, Barnes & Noble had some of the biggest bookstores in the world, and, you know, they just got comfortable with that, and, and other things happened. Um, you know, so I, I think that's kind of the same thing that's happening with this. They, Apple dominated the world with iTunes, but they just, you know, put it off to the side, and, and they didn't, you know, it, it didn't change with the times, and it really needed to. And it doesn't mean that it can't catch up, but they're, they're definitely behind. Um, yeah. so, so we'll have to see. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of big name, Dan Brown lives right down the street for me. And you and I have talked about this a little bit off the air, but I've gotten to know him a little bit. Uh, he's got a children's book coming out. Um, and, and you know, Dan, Dan's an extremely creative guy. So when he puts out a children's book, he doesn't just put out a children's book. Um, so he, he wrote an entire symphony to go along with this because it's all about music and there's an app that you can download for the book. Um, and, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because like, this is just such outside the box thinking for, for anybody, let alone just for, for him. But you, you basically, you load this app on your phone, your iPhone or your, your whatever. And if you hold your phone over the book, it knows what page you're on in the book <laughs> and it play, it plays the appropriate music for that particular page. 
um, which is just really cool technology. You know, I'm sure it's just using the camera. It's probably, you know, it, it's not, you know, crazy difficult to do, but, you know, I've never seen anything like that being you know done before, especially for a children's book, um, you know, and having a, a toddler at home, like, you know, as soon as he gave me a copy of it, I, I gave it to her and she was all over it. And then she saw the app and like, you know, she immediately understood how that worked, you know, and she's, she's not even three years old yet. So it's just very, very intuitive. But I, I love seeing people come up with creative ways to, you know, to, to sell books or to get books in front of people, you know, in this case, to get them in front of children, because if, if you've got a toddler, you know, that, there's a lot of children's books out there. And for the most part, a lot of them don't resonate. You know, we, we get them, you know, sent to us by friends and family all the time. And, you know, maybe one out of every 10 will just all of a sudden become her absolute favorite that she's yeah. got to, you know, she's got to hold and she's got to read and she's got to have it read to her like over and over and over again. And the other nine, they just go up on the bookshelf and she just doesn't care. And, and trying to figure out what that, you know, one little thing is that sparks that kind of interest is, is, got to be near impossible. I mean, it, it's difficult to do it in an adult. I can't even imagine trying to figure that out, you know, with, with children. Yeah. It, it, uh, I think that's the Pareto principle, isn't it? A 80, 20 rule. Like it, it seems like that applies in so many circumstances. Like, you know, you, you take any 10 books and eight of the 10 won't sell for anything. Right. And one or two of them, for some reason, even they're very similar. Uh, and that's probably the same in children's books too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, saw something crazy in the news, and I need to go back and make sure I read this right. But I'm pretty sure either Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos came up with a neural link. Have you heard about no, this? No, I haven't. Yeah, I get those two guys confused, and I'm, I'm <laughs> honestly, I'm pretty sure they're the same person. I think they they're both be. they're both Tony Stark in in some some respect. <laughs> um, but but the way I understand this, it's a, a neural implant um, that can be used to either read your thoughts or somehow link to your thoughts, um, something along those lines. And and like one of the stories that I was reading, um, you know, like I, I'm personally I'm one Twinkie away from needing insulin. You know, like <laughs> I, I I'm like I, I'm in perf- I'm in great shape. Like I exercise all the time. I eat really healthy, but my my blood glucose for whatever reason just loves to be a high number so i have to be really careful with that and from what i was reading with this neural link like rather than having to take a medication for something like that it can actually tweak your brain to to create you know the, the necessary insulin in your body to offset it um you know which is just amazing to think about because you know most of these medications you know sure they'll, they'll cause like in this case cause your body to make more insulin and offset the problem but along with that one good thing there's you know 10 bad things that, that come along there's there's always a side effect um, so like the fact that we're even seeing this kind of thing in our lifetime is, is insane. Um, but it, it got me thinking, you know, you take somebody like Kevin J. Anderson who dictates books, you know, on the regular into a, you know, micro cassette recorder and, and he's extremely pro- prolific. What's going to happen when we can, you know, dictate a book with our thoughts. Yeah. You know, like, and like, that's maybe something we, we might actually see in our lifetime, which is, which is crazy, but it, but it's out there. Yeah. It's it's a it's mind bending to think about it. Not only the creation, but then the consumption. You know, like at some point, like if you can create it in some sort of neural connection, you could deliver it that way too. And yeah, like I mean, read read a book in a millisecond, or yeah. or maybe even like learn to play the piano. You know, like literally just download that information into your brain. You know, like uh, what was it, Johnny Mnemonic? I think where they had something like that, like years <laughs> years back. But like, yeah, science fiction and you know, like Philip K. Dick stories are, are are coming to life around us, which is it's very cool to to actually see. Yeah, yeah, crazy stuff. <laughs> crazy stuff. Speaking of crazy stuff. So I, I get a lot of authors that reach out to me, um, you know, with, with books, they want me to blurb and, and things like that, or, you know, just asking for general advice. I'm just going to put something out there and this is probably going to piss off a couple of people. Um, but if, if you get a deal from a small press, look at it very, very, very carefully before you, you sign on that line, because I, I had a friend who just reached out to me and, and he signed, uh, signed up with a small press and I'm not going to throw the name out there because to me, they're all very similar. Um, but he's essentially going to get 25 cents on the dollar, um, no money up front, no money going into marketing. Um, it's a, yeah, all he's really getting out of it is the ability to be able to tell people, Hey, I've got a publisher that's not worth trading, yes. <laughs> you know, what, what, what you're giving away. And, and like so many people do it, like they, they want to be able to go to Thanksgiving dinner and tell their, their family and friends that, Hey, I've got a publisher for my book. Um, but you know, like, God, please, before you make that decision, before you sign on that line, weigh all the, the good and the bad. 
Um, you know, make sure they're giving you something that you can't get on your own. You know, if, if you indie publish a title, you're going to get 70 cents on the dollar. You know, that, that's, that's where the market is at. It, you sign with anybody else, it's going to be a much smaller number. So if you're going to give up whatever that difference in percentage is, make sure you're getting either a large advance check or they're, you know, through, doing something on the marketing side that you can't do on your own. Um, if they tell you that they're going to put you into bookstores, make sure they've actually got the ability to do it. Um, because I, I can tell you, you know, speaking as, as somebody who's had books, you know, with all the major publishers, a lot of times they can't do it. You know, small bookstores, especially the indies, they've got very limited shelf space. They, they buy what they want. You know, sales rep walks into that store, pitches them on the last, you know, the latest, you know, 20 titles from Random House and that bookstore owner may pick up, you know, three of those or one of those. Um, it's totally out of their hands. You know, for a store like Barnes and Noble, when they're, they're running at, at, you know, when they're actually open, um, every book that you see on those tables, that space is all bought and paid for. That's not something a, a small press can just say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get you into Barnes and Noble. They're not going to be able to do that. Like that, that table with new releases at the, the door of Barnes and Noble is somewhere in the range of 20 to $30,000 a week, just to have your title wow. sitting out there. Um, you know, most, most people can't play in that world. Um, so again, before you sign on that dotted line, if, whatever they're promising you, make sure it's worthwhile. Make sure you somehow verify what they're promising you, because um, most of these guys can't deliver. Um, it, it, it really has to be something that, you know, that they're bringing to the table, something, something worthwhile to, to actually do it at this point. Um, because otherwise you, you can do it on your own. Even if you hire out all the individual parts, I, I know so many people that say, oh, I just, I don't know how to do it. I can't market. I can't create a cover. I can't do this. I can't do that. There are so many resources at this point where you can hire the people to do that for you. You can still get it done and you'll still end up making you know more money in the long run. Um, you're not getting money up front, but you know, that 70 cents on the dollar, you know, you're, you're, you're making it back a lot faster than you would through any of these other people. So just please take all that into consideration before you make a decision. Yes. It's good advice. <laughs> so that, that's the end of my PSA. All right. So, so who do we have on today? Uh, we have Adam Croft coming to us today from across the pond. Nice. Okay. So Adam's a friend of yours, right? Uh, I know Adam. Um, yeah, we're acquaintances and we moved in some of the same circles and uh, he's a thriller writer and a teacher and uh, an entertaining guy with a, with a pretty cool story. And uh, I think we're going to get into that in the interview and, and he sort of had a breakout hit in, a, in, a, in an unconventional way. So I think it's going to be fun to talk to him about it. Yeah, now without giving it away, this this was the guy with the tagline, right? That's right. Yeah, this is the guy with the tagline. Okay, and this is something that I, I tend to preach to to people that I that I talk to. When you create a book, you know, if you're not going to outline, at least create the back of the book blurb. Um, and once you do that, create a tagline, one sentence that describes your book. Um, you know, it, it, in my eyes, that the best tagline ever created is is um, in space nobody can hear you scream. <laughs> like the, the tagline that you want, like that's what you're shooting for. You're not going to get it because that that's really damn good. Um, but but you want something that's going to resonate that well and this guy just happened to land on one of those yeah so let's get into it and then we'll uh we'll catch on the flip side and talk about it all right here he is adam croft hey adam i have uh one question for you and and i think this is really the the only question i might want to ask you are you ready uh i think so <laughs> could you murder your wife to save your daughter <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I don't have a daughter, I have a son, um, <laughs> and I've, I've just had um, a couple of weeks off work, with, <laughs> and uh, that, that question is probably now easier to answer than it normally would be. That's <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, let, let's back up for a second. For, for those who don't know, uh, you made a really big splash in, in 2015 with uh, a, a wonderful book called Her Last Tomorrow. And this was the, the log line or the tagline or the hook that, mm -hmm. that you used, and it worked brilliantly. So um, now that we kind of get that little chuckle all the way, maybe we could back up a little bit and you could tell us <laughs> a little bit about um, you know, how that question came up and, and sort of how, it's, uh, how you've been using it and, and how it's almost set the table for a great career for you. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't something I really expected to work. Um, I kind of hoped it would. Um, I'd been writing now for, well, a number of years, but I've been publishing for, uh, well, 10 now. Um, and it had been about five years before I, I wrote the book that was to become Her Last Tomorrow. And it was a bit of a departure from things I'd done before. I'd stuck to crime thrillers and mysteries, and this was more of a psychological thriller, although I didn't actually know that at the time. <laughs> it's just a, an idea for a book that I had. Um, I saw it as a crime book from the um, point of view of the victim rather than from the, uh, the, the detectives. 
And you know, I, I kind of wasn't, didn't feel like I was getting anywhere with it. I'd written about two thirds, three quarters of it, and it, it sat on the hard drive for about six months. I didn't really know what to do. And I took uh, a course on Facebook advertising and sort of online marketing for books and started to take um, the business and marketing side of things much more seriously in the summer of 2015. And as I was doing that and practicing advertising some of the books that I already had out there, because I already had eight books out, uh, it, it kind of struck me that I was struggling to draw attention to the ones that were there and to, and to grab people's eye. And that was when I thought, well, actually, I have got a book mostly written, which if anything's going to work in terms of advertising, anything's going to stop people when they're browsing through Facebook or make them think, actually, God, I've, I've got to buy that then it would be that and it would be the concept from that book. So that kind of spurred me on to, to finish it and to, to get the book finished and out there. Um, and yeah, it turns out that that, that theory was, was a bit correct. Yes. Yeah. That's an understatement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know it's, it's a bit in your rear view mirror at this point, but is it possible to to deconstruct that a little bit w with hindsight? I mean, I know that you know a lot of people take Facebook Facebook ad courses, and a lot of people were you know working in Amazon ads today, and uh, and and you know it's common, it's good practice, I guess, to come up with a log line or sort of a a hook like that. What do you think it was about that particular one that that really resonated with readers? Well, I think there's a few things that have got to catch people's eye, especially with Facebook ads. I mean, the first one is the image. Um, so having something kind of arresting that grabs people as they're browsing through. Um, and you know, I've always said, I'm the first person to say, I don't think every book can be advertised with Facebook ads. I've had you know, a couple that I've been able to do okay with. I've had two that have been really successful. Um, but, you know, I'm kind of 20, 25 books in. So even 90% of the books that I advertise on Facebook don't do anything. Um, so I don't think it's something that can turn an immediate profit for every book. I think it's an important part of every writer's arsenal in, in some form or another. I think for that one, um, in terms of the tagline itself, there's a few different elements that, that came into play there. Um, there's a question, of course, um, which you know, to the, to the human brain, questions all need answering no matter how rhetorical they are um and there's a few kind of psychological elements there as well i'm not talking about a character i'm putting the reader in their shoes it's could you murder your wife to save your daughter um it's domestic and a vast majority of people can can relate to kind of interpersonal relationships and family life it's shocking you're talking about murdering your loved ones um there's something at stake there's a daughter's life there's the impossible choice. You're talking about, you know, choosing between two of your loved ones. You know, in what is it? Nine words, I think it is. There's, there's a lot in there. Um, a lot of different psychological pools that that really work. Um, it's it's not something that can necessarily be reverse engineered from all books. It is possible. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's quite a few things that that came into play there with with that particular one. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and. Uh... You know, for for maybe skeptics who think, well, you know, maybe her last tomorrow was a fluke. Uh, I'm going to ask you to humble brag a little bit because uh, <laughs> you've had quite a bit of success after that book. I, I know only the truth. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you hit number one in the in the Kindle store with that book, didn't you? Yeah, UK and US. Oh, both, um, right? Yes. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, and Amazon at that time had me ranked as the most widely read author in the world um, because of that book. Um, that was, that was a combination of things. That was one that, um, that was the only book, actually the only uh, complete book that I had uh, published through Thomas and Mercer for Amazon publishing. Um, now I have the rights back to that. Um, and they put that through on a Kindle first deal and, and what have you. And that was kind of only a couple of months, really a few months after her last tomorrow came out. So it, it kind of rode on the coattails of that a little bit as well. Um, and yeah, also, um, my most successful one to date is, is tell me I'm wrong again, psychological thriller. Again, it's got a hook, which was, um, what if you discovered your husband was a serial killer? So again, questions, personal pronouns, <laughs> um, domestic family life. It's the, the contrast of the husband and the killer. Uh, it's asking what you would do. You know, the, 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 these kind of elements are, are all, are, are all in there. Um, Again, it's worth me saying these are things that are peculiar to psychological thrillers. They're not 
you know, you couldn't necessarily use those same rules for writing a sci-fi hook or for writing a romance hook. So, um, you know, they are very specific to to the genre that I'm, I'm writing in there. I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, it's it's not a formula. It's sort of an approach. Mm. And mm-hmm. have you experimented with uh, writing these types of, of hooky sales copy or one-liners in other genres? Or are you kind of keeping your head down and, and, and doing mostly, you know, psychological thriller crime? Like that's sort of your thing and not worrying about the other genres. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I'm always of the view that if I don't know something really well, then I'm not going to advise on it um, because there are always other people who can. And I, I don't know sci-fi. I don't know fantasy. I don't know romance. I'm so kind of embedded in the, the crime and thriller world um, from my, my fiction background. I've never really kind of strayed into other genres. So I, you know, I try not to, to advise on things that I, I don't feel comfortable doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> The, the, the kind of the concepts behind writing hooks and behind writing blurbs are similar. Um, human psychology is um, is all the same. It might not be necessarily the same ingredients that make it into the blurb, but the psychology behind it um, will be the same. So yeah, I mean, I've you know I've written a book on writing killer blurbs and hooks and, 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 done, and done a course on that. So yeah, the the, the kind of the, the the approach is similar. Um, so I guess there's there's all there's a kind of an overarching approach to it and there are specifics for different genres but yeah when it comes to kind of genre specifics i can only really comment on on the genres that i write in yeah that's a a great uh reminder that we should um mention that you do have books and services available for authors especially ones who are, are looking to maybe improve uh you know the copywriting skills or, or business and sales uh can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about the the books and services you have available for authors yeah, I mean, at the time of recording, I've got uh, three books out for authors, The Indie Author Mindset, The Indie Author Checklist, and Writing Killer Blurbs and Hooks. Um, there's also a series of mini courses. I, I've been asked for, well, since Her Last Tomorrow came out, really, to, to, to do courses on how people can kind of do the same thing. And I'd always resisted it for a few reasons. I mean, there are already some great courses out there. I'm well aware from, you know, knowing people like Mark Dawson, how much work goes into putting these things together. It's a huge amount of work um, and huge amount of upkeep. And as well, you know, my, my approach to the business of writing is very much a long-term one. I'm not um, all that interested in what's the latest big ad platform or what's the, the newest fad here and there. It's very much about building up that, that long-term readership and, uh, and an, an audience for the next 10, 20, 30 years to come. So I tried to work out a way that I could do this. And it was only about less than a year ago that I actually finally got things up and running. And they're kind of short mini courses, an hour, two hours of content at the most. You know, the pricing reflects that. It's normally kind of 30 to 50 bucks. Um, and it means that people can kind of pick and mix which ones they want to do. They're all on very specific subjects. Um, so you're not buying an overall, this is how to self-publish course, which is hundreds of hours, some stuff you might not need, might be too basic, too advanced. You can kind of pick and mix as you go um, and, and learn what's, what's appropriate for you at that time. Yeah, I think you were on Joanna Penn's podcast when Mindset came out or, or roughly yeah. around that point. And I remember uh, picking that book up and reading it then. And I was also struck by that that it did to me it it felt like um you were really taking a a long tail approach that this Mm -hmm. is something you want to do for a long time and because of that you've adjusted your strategies and tactics uh so that you don't it's not necessarily a gold rush mentality for you would that be correct absolutely yeah i mean I, i would always i can't remember the exact quote from popeye but something to do with um you know, I'll give you a dollar today for for ten next week, and that's that's the um, that's heavily paraphrased, <laughs> but that that's pretty much my my approach to things. Um, you know, I'd rather give somebody a book of mine today um, to get them on my mailing list and to know that um, I've then got the opportunity of selling them my next ten books rather than selling them a book today and then having to make the effort of selling them every individual book thereafter, going out and finding them again. 
Um, so my mailing list is a huge part of my my strategy. And I'm always thinking about the long term. I want to set myself up now for making things much easier 10, 20 years in the future and to have that recurring income. Um, because otherwise, when it comes to marketing and advertising, you can carry on doing the same things over and over again. I think there's a, there's a lot of ways you can streamline everything and, and put the effort in now so that you don't have to do as much years down the line. Yeah, very wise. Uh, I know Mark Dawson talks about the value, the lifetime value of the customer and, and the read-through percentages. Um, do you do any sort of um, quasi-math in that or do you sort of just trust that, of course, if someone gets into to book one of a series or, or the first book of, of your catalog and they enjoy it, then they're going to read the rest or, or is there some somewhere in between for you? Yeah, I do. I calculate my read-through rates um, and also have a mini course on that for that one Perfect. in there, seeing as, seeing as you set me up for it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very much a data-driven person. Um, I love spreadsheets. I love data. Um, numbers never lie. And yeah, for me, that's, that's definitely um, something that, that I use. I've definitely got a very kind of business-minded uh, approach to things. I'm, I'm, I'm very much of, of the view that if you can track things and see trends and um, have a kind of a, a scientific data-driven approach, then you can't go far wrong. Excellent. Well, let's talk about one of those aspects of, of your long-term business strategy and your approach to the business of writing, which is the Partners in Crime podcast. Uh, yeah. Can you tell me sort of how that fits into your, your, both your branding and your long-term business goals? Um, well, I mean, initially, it was just a lot of fun. It's um, a friend of mine uh, who's a, a, kind of a British TV actor and also a crime writer. He lives a, a few hundred yards up the road from me. And, you know, we kind of bump into each other in the pubs around here. And we'd, we'd meet up occasionally for coffee and beer. And we'd just kind of chat about writing and about books that we'd loved reading and, and what have you. And it was, um, it was just a genuinely really interesting. We'd sit there for an hour and have a chat. And we thought, wouldn't it be interesting? Wouldn't it it'd be fascinating, really, to just kind of put a microphone on and record this and do something with it? And we did. We did a video on YouTube for a few years back now when I um, when I had a book of mine come out. It was all part of a launch process of that. And he kind of loosely interviewed me, but we, we pretty much just sat there in his, his living room and chatted. Um, and we decided to turn that into a podcast. And that became Partners in Crime. The idea being that we were both crime writers. It started off fairly dry. We, we interviewed other writers and talked to them. And it became a bit kind of formulaic. And also became a lot of effort. And um, beginning of 2019, when we came into doing our um, sort of second year, we thought, okay, how can we make this simpler? And we dropped the interviews, mainly because we'd done all the big names by then anyway and there was nobody left um and because it was just a hell of a lot easier and now it's just half an hour of us sitting there we don't plan anything you know sometimes we'll know we want to talk about a tv show we've seen or a book we've read or something we might have jotted down but there's no structure there's no plan it's kind of roughly about half an hour um and some weeks we don't even get around to talking about crime fiction it's just us being being a bit daft and talking about whatever happens it's essentially whatever goes through our minds during that half an hour and it's it's a lot of fun um for a business point of view not sure it does too much um i guess the idea was that people who like crime fiction will listen to it and it might remind them to to read our books um but genuinely it's it's just great fun and it gets us out to festivals as well we've done uh, one or two of those now where we go out to to crime festivals and literary festivals and we do the show on the road live in front of an audience and uh, we've been asked to, to go and do one in in iceland later this year so that's going to be really exciting as well so yeah it's just kind of it's good fun there are good opportunities that that come from it um not sure there was any kind of um business decision to it as such no <laughs> uh, it does it, uh, you guys have great chemistry and you've, you know, you've, you're what 90 close to a hundred episodes, maybe at this point, you're, you're yeah. multiple years. And I yeah. think too, it's important to recognize that it's not a writing podcast, right? It's a, it's a podcast for fans of crime fiction. Oh yeah, absolutely. And there's lots of people who listen who don't even read crime fiction. Um, 
like I say, some weeks we don't even mention crime fiction. <laughs> it's just us messing around. Um, so, yeah, it, it's not for writers. It's um, I'm not even entirely sure who it's for. Really. I think it's just <laughs> for us. What's been one of the most uh, surprising and or disappointing things about podcasting that you've learned over the past few years? I think the most surprising thing is how much work is is involved um and you know how much money as well these things cost you know to to host it to get the right gear and to, to set up properly um i mean as you know I, I like to do things properly so i you know i've made sure i have the best mic and the best setup and, and everything there and trying to get everything sounding as professional as possible um and that's another reason why we cut back on doing the interviews because of the editing if it's just yes. us uh, bob comes around we sit right here we get the mics out, we hit record, and then half an hour later we hit stop and we top and tail with a theme tune and that's it. And the entire editing time is about five minutes and you can probably tell by listening to it. So, yeah, we don't edit mistakes out. They're all part of the fun. Um, and people like that. They like when things go wrong. It gives character to the podcast as well. And it means that it gives us a hell of a lot less to do. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think I'm... I'm all in favor of a nice, polished, uh, finished production. I think you, you need to take pride in, in whatever you create. Yeah. But within that, I, I agree with you. And the conversations, whether they're with guests or whether with their co-host, the stumbles and the trips and the, you know, the baby's crying and the cat's jumping on the <laughs> desk. Like I, I think that's uh, it's very relatable stuff. And, and I think yeah. fans of podcasts really do uh, appreciate that. They don't expect it to be, you know, sterile or, or you know, um, or perfected exactly, yeah. in a stiff way. Yeah, I think if you've got a good quality microphone that picks up the sound of the cat meowing perfectly, then, <laughs> then the mistakes are even funnier. <laughs> yeah, great, great. I, I, uh, I wonder if we could talk about your website for a minute. And sure. uh, I, I think this is something that a lot of authors are either unsure about or, or maybe they're using uh, dated information uh, and they're not really sure what the purpose of an author website is or what it should look like. Uh, so, so maybe at the highest level, in your opinion, what is what is the primary function of an author website? Um, for me, it's a hub and a presence. Um, if people Google me, then hopefully they'll end up there um, and not any of the places that have got outdated and inaccurate information, or at least not you know more outdated than my own website which are normally pretty outdated um it's a place where readers can go and get the definitive list of books um because it's amazing how many people don't know how many books i've got out there or which order they come in um it's also somewhere i can host things like my landing pages and sign up offers for my mailing list which are absolutely vital the mailing list is something every author should have it's the biggest tool in my arsenal by a long long shot um and Hosting those those sign up pages has a number of benefits, which probably uh, too many to to go through on a, a on a podcast. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's also a nice ego stroking exercise. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was I was struck by uh, I, I, maybe it's because I'm such a fanboy of Nick Stevenson, but I. When I go to an author's website, I can almost see his influence if they've been reading, you know, reader mm -hmm. magnets or if they've been following his stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. Have you incorporated some of Nick Stevenson's approaches or do you just happen to have coincidentally the same approach? Yeah, I probably did. Um, you know, I've read all of his stuff and done his courses and things years and years ago. Um, my website is, hasn't really changed design and style wise in years, as you can probably tell. So, yeah, I've, it's it's entirely likely that I did just kind of go. Um, you know, at a stage where I was young and naive, I probably looked in and went, well, it works for him. It'll work for me too. Which, right. You know, now I know it doesn't work um, in, in any uh, medium at all. But, um, you know, getting a new website is expensive and that one will do. I, well, I think it's very effective. <laughs> I mean, uh, you yeah, know, it works. It works. I, I think I have a very similar approach and I, I approach the website as being very uh, a minimalist approach. And my, my mm. number one objective is to get new readers onto a mailing list. And, and that's yeah. really why the website is there. And I noticed like mm -hmm. your, you know, your free offers are above the fold. You, you don't have a lot of extraneous elements on, on your homepage. Mm -hmm. And so you're sort of funneling attention towards here's my offer to, for your email address. And uh, I would have to think that, that people will either at that point say, well, there's nothing else here for me 
or they will say, I, I'm really into what Adam Croft's doing and I want to know more. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is, that, is, is that an accurate re- representation of what you're hoping to achieve with it? Yeah. I mean, the main thing is, you know, for me, the main thing is getting people on the mailing list as well. If you go to my website, you see that's what hits you front and center in the face. It's it's click here to get two free books. Um, so, yeah, it, it's branding. It's a hub for accurate information. Hopefully it's a way people can get in contact with me as well. You know, I'm getting emails from readers all the time and they come through a contact form on the website because um, that's how they can kind of write to me in in long form, I guess, rather than a, a tweet or a, or a Facebook message. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's got a number of purposes, but I suppose from a business point of view, then yeah, it is, um, it is the, the mailing list getting people on there in an official sense and also long-term as well. I mean, who knows what use an author's website is going to have in five, 10 years time. Um, a lot of people are selling direct. There are some, some benefits and of course, some drawbacks to that. Um, you know, that's something that's not possible if you, if you don't have your own website. Um, and it's authenticity as well. Yeah. If you're setting yourself up as a serious author and as a business, you know, what author and what business doesn't have a website, doesn't have a home on the web? Is there any validity to the devil's advocate position of, well, I have, you know, 5,000 followers on Facebook or I have 20,000 Twitter followers. So that's, that's where I want to be directing people. That's where I engage. That's where my audience is. What would you say to that? Um, it's perfectly valid, but it's also risky because you don't own your Twitter following. You don't own your Facebook following. If you've got people on your mailing list or on your website, you've got control over that. If Facebook decide to shut down your account tomorrow or Twitter decides to shut down your account or if they close or if those, um, if those venues decide to become less popular and people move on elsewhere, then you're starting again. Whereas if you've got kind of uh, clean data that you own on your your mailing list you know emails going nowhere um their websites are going nowhere they're not kind of flash in the pan things in fact they're they're getting bigger and bigger so again it it, it feeds into that long-term thing i'm not looking for the, the the gold rush or what's big right now i'm looking at what's going to last and what's going to make my life much easier in 10 20 years time yeah great i totally agree with you on that uh, we, you know, I, I typically like to finish with uh, a question about the approach to the business of writing, but I, I think we've kind of covered that. So I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, uh, I'm going to call an audible here and I'm going to ask you another question I think might be interesting as well, but given that we're at the beginning of a, of a new decade and, and uh, I would also say, it, you know, the, the beginning of a new era of, of uh, independent publishing, it kind of feels like mm-hmm. we're on the cusp of that. And I'm curious as to uh, what your thoughts are on the future of the thriller genre in general. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, that's a good one. Um, yeah, wait, wait, wait to catch me off guard. Um, I, I don't know, to be honest with you. It's, um, I've never been that good at keeping up with trends anyway. That's one of the reasons why I don't kind of push them. Um, as I said earlier, when I wrote a psychological thriller and put it out there, I didn't know it was a psychological thriller until somebody told me it was. And I certainly wasn't aware that it was probably about the biggest genre on Amazon at that moment in time. Um, so it's difficult for me to say, really. Um, you know, I hear there are trends towards things like cozies. Um, and it's something we've talked about in Partners in Crime a few times. is this kind of yin and yang effect between society and fiction. Uh, especially in crime fiction, it seems that you know the, the kind of the, the crime is is now I think the most widely read genre in the world to overtaken romance, and I think the reason for that is we're living in turbulent times. You know, socially, politically, economically around the world, it's um, it, it it's it's messy to say the least. And in crime, um, the bad guys always get what's coming to them, and things always work out well in the end, and we get to experience that death and destruction in a safe space um you know, crime was massive during the, the 1930s um when we had you know the rise of fascism in europe and world war ii and everything going on and you know come off the back of the great depression and, and all of this and the world was in turmoil then and and crime came out of nowhere to you know it was a it's a genre that didn't exist 50 years earlier and it was suddenly the, the biggest in the world. And it's kind of happening again now. And I, I wonder if it's um, you know, the rise of crime fiction and the, the being able to enjoy things like that safely and know that everything's going to be all right or something that, that worked really well. Because 
you know, when things were were going well during the 90s, for example, disaster movies were massive. 28 Days Later and um, I can't remember them. I can you know, see visions in my mind of you know, New York flooding and things like this, all sorts of different, different disaster movies. They were huge because, again, they were safe. Um, you know, the world was, was fine and we got to experience um, disaster. So, and, you know, films where there, there weren't happy endings necessarily. So I think the, the, the worse state society is in, the more we desire a happy ending. All right, JD, that was Adam Croft. And uh, again, we, we need to make a quick note for listeners and that it was recorded prior to the pandemic. So uh, take it into context. But uh, what'd you think? So could you murder your wife to save your daughter? That was that was the line. right? That's the line from her last tomorrow was the book. Yes. Yeah, I probably shouldn't say that too loud because my wife is in the other room. <laughs> it, it actually made me think of something that a, a buddy of mine had told me years years back, like right after he had a he had a baby, and he was um he was sitting in his office and he just he looked like he was contemplating something, like he was staring out the window. And I asked him what was up, and he goes, "I just I was thinking about this, and like somebody brought it up to me last night. It, if if a car was gonna gonna hit your your wife, would you jump in front of that car and give up your own life to to save her?" And, and he's like, when they asked me that question, I hesitated. And then the same person asked him, if it was your daughter, what would you do? And like he said, I would, you know, like zero thought he would immediately jump in front of that car. Um, but it, it just kind of puts things into perspective, like self-preservation over, you know, like your, <laughs> what you love more yourself or, or somebody else, you know, which is, I, I know I'm going off in the, in the weeds here a little bit, but just that kind of line, you know, the, the fact that his tagline makes me or anybody else think about something else, like it, it just shows you that it grabs you. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. You, I have a similar story. I, I have a, a, an old friend, and she she said to me one time before I had kids, she says like she's like, let me explain to you how the love between a parent and a child because I didn't have kids at the time. She's like, let me I'll, I'll frame it from like okay. She's like, if there was a bus coming and it was about to hit my son, she's like, I would dive in front of the bus and push him out of the way. She's like, if if the bus was coming to hit my husband, I'd say, hey. Mike, there's a bus coming. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like that sums it up right there. <laughs> and, and, you know, Adam might be the first guy who actually quoted Popeye, I think, on the podcast. Yeah, he did. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we are kind of joking about it, but like, and Adam even mentioned it, it's not like you can't really reverse engineer it. Like it's not something you can just kind of plug in and work. He, he kind of had some magical juju going with that tagline at the right time with the right book and man it 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 was a breakout success for him yeah it's always about the perfect storm you can i mean you have to write the five star book i tell people that all the time it's got to be you know the perfect book or as good as you can get it um that's got to be a given before you head into any of this um, but what ends up happening in, in especially on the traditional side, they try to chase these, you know, like Gone Girl, you know, hit and like nobody expected Gone Girl to be what it was. You know, Gillian Flynn, that was her third book, I think, out of a three book deal. You know, her first did, two did OK, but I don't think either of them actually hit the New York Times list. And then that one came out and it was just like a, a ridiculous, you know, grand slam out of the park. Um, so then immediately, like every book coming out after that was trying to chase that, you know, that from, you know, and because they pick it apart, they look at, okay, well, what did we do to market that book? And they try to duplicate that, right. you know, you know, wh what, what is the story about? And they try to duplicate that and all of that stuff trickles down. So like my agent was calling and saying, well, you need a book like this. And, you know, she'd rattle off the facts related to it. And, you know, if, if I wrote that book in a day, you know, it still wouldn't come out for another year and a half. So the world is obviously shit changing, you know, so none of these factors are really Really, you know, relevant anymore, but but they chase them anyway. And it, it was the same thing, you know, years back when I worked in the music business, they did the same thing. You know, somebody would come out with a hit song and, you know, two weeks later, there was, you know, five, 10 other ones exactly like it trying to chase it. And some of them did good. You know, the girl, girl on a Train was probably a good example. Like that, that one was trying to chase Gone Girl. Um, and it, and it came really close, um, you know, and, you know, it, it, it's a good book. It's, it's not as good as Gone Girl, but it, it, it's a good book. But, you know, it, it did extremely well because they, they were able to somehow jump on the coattails of what people were looking for. People put down Gone Girl, said, I want something else just like that. And, you know, this one just happened to be right there. But, you know, even then, I mean, you're, you're basically trying to capture lightning twice. You know, lightning doesn't strike the same place, you know, twice. Um, so then to try to do it a third time or a fourth time, it's just it's near impossible. But, you know, the perfect storm has to come together nobody knows what's going to make up that perfect
perfect storm. Uh, all you can do as an author is just write the the perfect book and and hope that the the rest of the pieces line up line up and fall in place. Yeah, and here's yet another example of an author who's playing the long game. You know, Adam was writing for years before this happened, and he he even mentioned about you know eight or nine, uh, you know, eight or nine tries are not going to work well, but that one book, for some reason, it, it really hit. And so it's a numbers game. You, you have to produce, you have to keep creating because you just don't know which one of those could capture that lightning in a bottle. Yeah. And, and that one big seller can go back and it can light up the backlist. Um, you know, the next three might not sell at all. Like you, you just don't know. So like, like you said, you just put your nose to the, the grindstone, just keep writing, just write the next book, write the next book, write the next book. Um, hopefully it happens again, but you know, all these little things, they, they elevate your profile and, and that you know gets you in front of more and more people and, you know, obviously more and more sales and, you know, that's how you survive in this business. Yeah. Yeah. He, he brought he brought up the mailing list too, and and I'm still on the fence about the the whole giveaway thing. Um, you know, because I, I know Mark Dawson preaches that, and I know a lot of people that that do that. Um, uh, but when I when I gave away free books in exchange for email addresses, all it did was just create a very large email list for me. Um, you know, and a lot of those people, you know, were basically just ex- expecting more free product. You know, they they weren't there as buyers; they were waiting for for additional free books. And I I could see that when I you know when I did a mailing campaign because of the number of people that either dropped off or the conversions. Um, you know, that information is readily available. So I, I I still to this day I, I I don't know whether or not that works. I know a lot of people try it. Um, I I personally think that it just made my mailing list very expensive to to actually utilize. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would, I would confirm that. I mean, I've had the same mailing list for, for 10 years and I built a lot of it on free stuff and uh, it's, it doesn't have the same level of engagement. I mean, if you're looking for strictly numbers, then yeah, you're going to, you're going to blow up your list if you're giving away free things. But, you know, I look at um, my, my, my buddy, Zach um, at, at the career author, you know, Zach, uh, never did any kind of um, give uh, swap, you know, promos or giveaways or anything like that. His only way of building his list was putting a call to action in the back of his books. So mm-hmm. by the time you you finish a book, if you're really into that book or that author, and then you join the list, like that's a really high quality subscriber. But I think you're right. Anything short of that, it, it's questionable. Like you might get interested people, but you might just be looking getting people who are interested in free books, and that's not quite as valuable. No, I mean, I, I'm definitely on board with putting um, like every, almost every one of my books have like a, at least one chapter of the next book in that series in, in the back or, you know, a couple chapters from the next book that's coming up, that kind of thing. Just, you know, a little taste of, of something to hook them in. And, and that definitely works. Um, but, you know, if people if, if they sign up to your list for free, I, th- I think that's what they're going to expect from you. Um, and, and I'm kind of in a, in a different world when it comes to this, because the, the bulk of my titles are traditionally published, right. which means like my ebooks are, you know, like I think my cheapest ebook is, is 10 bucks. Um, you know, the ones coming out of the, the big guys, they, they price them at like 14, $15 each. So, you know, if you give one away, like that's just too far of a leap. You know, I, I think you can give away like the first book in a series if you're controlling your pricing. You can get away with you know give away the first one. Next one's like three bucks or four dollars. You keep it fairly close. Keep it keep it low cost. I, I think you're going to keep those people on board. But when you've got that much of a gap um, in, in price, it's it's a different group of people. You know that that are buying and selling or buying these books and reading them. Yeah, it is, and I and I still believe in billing an email list is the most important thing an author can do for their business, but. I think it's also important to recognize that it's getting harder and harder to not only uh, to not only uh, attract but then retain subscribers because everyone's doing it. Like not and not just authors, like other industries and businesses are all using email for marketing, and there's a fatigue that sets in. So you should definitely not stop doing it, but also realize that uh, getting a subscriber is probably harder than it's ever been. Yeah. What about the frequency that you use your mailing list? Do you get in front of your people on a regular basis or do you try to to limit it? So what I do is uh, when people opt in, I tell them they're going to get one to two emails a month from me. And then I, that's what I deliver. So I think that's really what's important is whatever parameters you set or what other guidelines you set when someone subscribes, just follow through on that. Yeah. Cause I, I kind of, um, I, I get a lot of emails. Um, and you know, like th- there's plenty of authors that, you know, like I, I, they land in my inbox. I'm like, Oh, this guy again, you know, like I've, like I just got something from him like a week ago and, and you know, like another one and another one, and another one, like to me that gets a, a little bit old, but you know, I, I tend to get irritated real easily. So maybe it's just me. Um, I, I only get in front of people for, you know, like a pre-order, 
Um, you know, I put that out there that on a release date, I'll send another one. Um, and then any major news, you know, so if something's happening on the TV or movie front, you know, something along those lines and I'll, I'll kick something out, but otherwise I, I try to, to, to not hit them too much. Um, yeah. cause I, cause I, I know how I feel about it as a, as a, you know, receiver of those types of emails. Right. Um, right. And, and the other thing that, that tends to get me is if I get a message from somebody that I don't know, like, you know, if all of a sudden I'm on an email list and I don't know how I got there. Like it, it, this could be the best author in the world, you know, but if, if they do that and if it comes across like spam, I immediately hate that person. <laughs> like I not only hate them, I want to report them to MailChimp. I want to shut them down. Right. I, I want to hop in my car, go to their house, you know, grab them by the neck and say, where did you get my email address? Um, so yeah, don't spam people. Make sure if somebody, if you're sending them a message, make sure they totally understand how they got on that list to begin with. Um, you, you don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So yeah, great, great conversation with Adam. Lots of uh, useful stuff in there. He's got some uh, courses uh, that are very helpful. He's a great teacher. Has had a lot of success. So I de definitely recommend people check him out. Yeah, and he mentioned that people enjoy mistakes on podcasts, and I make a lot of those. So <laughs> uh, that, that was a very welcome thing to hear for sure. Yeah, um, that's something I believe in too. Like there are programs that will take out the ums and the uhs, but that that's so unnatural to me. I want to hear two people talking, and that's part of it. Well, you know, honestly, I think it makes it a little bit more personal. Like if you think about it, it, it feels like you're sitting down with a, you know, a few of your friends having a conversation rather than, exactly. you know, like if you put the TV on in the background and you're listening to the news where everything's perfect, um, you know, it, it, it's background noise, it's fodder. You don't, you don't feel close to those people. So I, th I think that's where that, that's coming from. Yeah, agreed. So, who do we have on uh, next week? So my buddy T.W. Piperbrook is coming on next week. And uh, Tyler's a really interesting guy because he is a full-time fiction writer he's an independent and he writes almost entirely post-apocalyptic fiction and he is uh making a living he supports his his wife and, and kid on, on that and i think that's that's a rarity i think for a lot of indies they require like myself they require other revenue streams whether that be coaching or courses or editing but but tyler it's all he does is write fiction and he's making a living at it so i think it's going to be a fun conversation well, that's cool. I, I'm curious. To, like, are you reading post-apocalyptic right now? Like the world being what it is? Or are you looking for other <laughs> other material? Uh, I'm reading this really great thriller right now by this guy Patterson and Barker. But uh, <laughs> you know, I typically I, I do like post-apoc. I read it quite a bit. Yeah, I, I do too. But like I, I've been getting, you know, like Stephen King, they redid The Stand again. Um, it's coming yeah. out on CBS All Access. And like, I'm not ac actually that excited about it because, <laughs> you know, like, it's a great story. But at the same time, like it just, it feels like it's hitting a little too close to home. Like yeah. I kind of want to get away from from this stuff and, you know, we'll, we'll see. But I know a lot of people are doing very well with that. I know it was real popular when, when this whole COVID thing first started. People, you know, started buying that stuff up for whatever right. reason. Right. Uh, that, 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 that's not me, but um <laughs> Yeah, it's great to hear that somebody's out there making a living at it. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be fun to talk to him about it next week. Alrighty. So to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.